Welcome to another episode from 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Followers of our show know for a fact that many of the best stories come from men and women who lived the life that they wrote about. For instance, Jack London was there in the Klondike for the Alaskan Gold Rush when he wrote our archived episode, To Build a Fire. Bret Hart lived in the gold mining towns of California when he wrote, The Luck of Roaring Camp. And Louisa May Alcott was working as a nurse in Washington, D.C. during the Civil War, which inspired her story, My Red Cap, also a part of our archives here at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Ambrose Bierce is another writer from that mold. His life is a story in itself. Now to Ambrose Bierce. Bierce was born in a log cabin at Horse Cave Creek in Miggs County, Ohio, on June 24, 1842, to Marcus Aurelius Bierce and Laura Sherwood Bierce. His mother was a descendant of William Bradford, who we all remember was the pilgrim leader who brought the logic of the harder you work, the more you will benefit to the Plymouth, Massachusetts settlers after their early system of only half of us work, but all of us benefit system, which failed miserably. That's a great story in itself. Ambrose was the 10th of 13 children whose father gave all names beginning with the letter A in order of birth. The Bierce siblings were Abigail, Amelia, Anne, Addison, Aurelius, Augustus, Almeida, Andrew, Albert, and Ambrose. His parents were a poor but literary couple who instilled in him a deep love for books and writing. Bierce grew up in Kosciuszko County, Indiana, attending high school at the county seat, Warsaw. He left home at 15 to become a printer's devil at a small Ohio newspaper. At the outset of the American Civil War, Bierce enlisted in the Union Army's 9th Indiana Infantry. He participated in the Operations in Western Virginia campaign in 1861. He was present at the First Battle at Philippi and received newspaper attention for his daring rescue under fire of a gravely wounded comrade at the Battle of Rich Mountain. In February of 1862, he was commissioned as a first lieutenant and served on the staff of General William Babcock Hazen as a topographical engineer, making maps of likely battlefields. Beers fought at the Battle of Shiloh in April of 1862, a terrifying experience that became a source for several later short stories and the memoir, What I Saw of Shiloh, which we will likely be doing soon over at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, our sister show. In June of 1864, he sustained a serious head wound at the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain and spent the rest of the summer on furlough, returning to active duty in September. He was discharged from the Army in January of 1865. His military career resumed, however, when in mid-1866 he rejoined General Hazen as part of the latter's expedition to inspect military outposts across the Great Plains. The expedition proceeded by horseback and wagon from Omaha, Nebraska, arriving toward year's end in San Francisco, California. In San Francisco, Bierce was awarded the rank of Brevet Major before resigning from the Army. He remained in San Francisco for many years, eventually becoming famous as a contributor or editor of a number of local newspapers and periodicals, 
including the San Francisco Newsletter, the Argonaut, the Overland Monthly, the Californian, and the Wasp. A selection of his crime reporting from the San Francisco Newsletter was included in the Library of America anthology, True Crime. From 1879 to 1880, he traveled to Rockerville and Deadwood in the Dakota Territory to try his hand as a local manager for a New York mining company. When the company failed, he returned to San Francisco and resumed his career in journalism. From early 1881 until September of 1885, he was editor of The Wasp magazine, in which he began a column titled Prattle. He also became one of the first regular columnists and editorialists on William Randolph Hearst's newspaper, The San Francisco Examiner, eventually becoming one of the most prominent and influential writers and journalists on the West Coast. He remained associated with Hearst newspapers until 1909. And from here his resume just gets better and better. The Union Pacific and Central Pacific Railroad companies had received large, low-interest loans from the U.S. government to build the first transcontinental railroad. Central Pacific executive Collis P. Huntington persuaded a friendly member of Congress to introduce a bill excusing the companies from repaying the loans amounting to $130 million, which would be worth about $3.7 billion today. In January of 1896, Hearst dispatched Bierce to Washington, D.C., to foil this attempt. The essence of the plot was secrecy. The railroad's advocates hoped to get the bill through Congress without any public notice or hearings. When the angered Huntington confronted Bierce on the steps of the Capitol and told Bierce to name his price, Bierce's answer ended up in newspapers nationwide. My price is $130 million. If, when you are ready to pay, I happen to be out of town, you may hand it over to my friend, the Treasurer of the United States. Bierce's coverage and diatribes on the subject aroused such public wrath that the bill was defeated. Bierce returned to California in November. During his lifetime, Bierce wrote realistically of the terrible things he had seen in the war, in such stories as An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge, A Horseman in the Sky, One of the Missing, and Chickamauga. His grimly realistic cycle of 25 war stories has been called the greatest anti-war document in American literature. According to Milton Sabatsky, Bierce helped pioneer the psychological horror story. In addition to his ghost and war stories, he also published several volumes of poetry. In October of 1913, Bierce, then age 71, and an accomplished writer, departed from Washington, D.C., for a tour of his old Civil War battlefields. By December, he had passed through Louisiana and Texas, crossing by way of El Paso into Mexico, which was in the throes of revolution. In Ciudad Juarez, he joined Pancho Villa's army as an observer, and in that role he witnessed the Battle of Tierra Blanca. Bierce is known to have accompanied Villa's army as far as the city of Chihuahua. His last known communication with the world was a letter he wrote there to Blanche Partington, a close friend, dated December 26, 1913. After closing this letter by saying, As to me, I leave here tomorrow for an unknown destination. He vanished without a trace. 
his disappearance becoming one of the most famous in American literary history. Skeptic Joe Nickel argued that no letter had ever been found. There was an official investigation by U.S. consular officials of the disappearance of one of its citizens. Some of Villa's men were questioned at the time of his disappearance and afterwards with contradictory accounts. Pancho Villa's representative in the U.S., Felix A. Summerfield, was contacted by U.S. Chief of Staff Hugh L. Scott, and Summerfield investigated the disappearance. Bierce was said to have been last seen in the city of Chihuahua in January. Oral tradition in Sierra Mojada, Coahuila, documented by a priest named James Leonard, states that Bierce was executed by firing squad in the town cemetery there. Despite an abundance of theories, including death by suicide, Bierce's end remained shrouded in mystery. He was quoted to have said, at age 71, upon settling his affairs with Hearst Papers and leaving Washington, D.C. for the Civil War in Mexico. To be a gringo in Mexico, ah, that is euthanasia. And now, our story. The Stranger by Ambrose Bierce A man stepped out of the darkness into the little illuminated circle about our failing campfire and seated himself upon a rock. You're not the first to explore this region, he said gravely. Nobody controverted his statement. He was himself proof of its truth, for he was not of our party and must have been somewhere near when we camped. Moreover, he must have had companions not far away. It was not a place where one would be living or traveling alone. For more than a week we had seen, besides ourselves and our animals, only such living things as rattlesnakes and horned toads. In an Arizona desert, one does not long coexist with only such creatures as these. One must have pack animals, supplies, arms, an outfit, and all these imply comrades. It was perhaps a doubt as to what manner of men this unceremonious stranger's comrades might be, together with something in his words interpretable as a challenge that caused every man of our half-dozen gentlemen adventurers to rise to a sitting posture and lay his hand upon a weapon, an act signifying, in that time and place, a policy of expectation. The stranger gave the matter no attention and began again to speak in the same deliberate, uninflected monotone in which he had delivered his first sentence. Thirty years ago, he said gravely, Thirty years ago, Ramon Gallegos, William Shaw, George W. Kent, and Barry Davis, all of Tucson, crossed the Santa Catalina Mountains and traveled due west, as nearly as the configuration of the countries permitted. We were prospecting, and it was our intention, if we found nothing, to push through to the Gila River at some point near Big Bend, where we understood there was a settlement. We had a good outfit, but no guide. Just Ramon Gallegos, William Shaw, George W. Kent, and Barry Davis. The man repeated the names slowly and distinctly, as if to fix them in the memories of his audience, us, every member of which was now attentively observing him, but with a slackened apprehension regarding his possible companions somewhere in the darkness that seemed to enclose us like a black wall. In the manner of this volunteer historian was no suggestion of an unfriendly purpose. 
His act was rather that of a harmless lunatic than an enemy. We were not so new to the country as not to know that the solitary life of many a plainsman had a tendency to develop eccentricities of conduct and character, not always easily distinguishable from mental aberration. A man is like a tree. In a forest of his fellows, he will grow as straight as his generic and individual nature permits. Alone in the open, he yields to the deforming stresses and torsions that environ him. Some such thoughts were in my mind as I watched the man from the shadow of my hat, pulled low to shut out the firelight. A witless fellow, no doubt. But what could he be doing here in the heart of a desert? Having undertaken to tell this story, I wish that I could describe the man's appearance. That would be a natural thing to do. Unfortunately, and somewhat strangely, I find myself unable to do so with any degree of confidence. For afterward, no two of us agreed as to what he wore, or how he looked, and when I try to set down my own impressions, they elude me. Anyone can tell some kind of a story. Narration is one of the elemental powers of the race, but the talent for description is a gift. Nobody having broken silence, the visitor went on to say, "'This country was not then what it is now. "'There wasn't a ranch between the Gila and the Gulf. "'There was a little game here and there in the mountains, "'and near the infrequent water holes, "'grass enough to keep our animals from starvation. "'If we should be so fortunate as to encounter no Indians, "'we might get through. "'But within a week, the purpose of the expedition had altered "'from discovery of wealth to preservation of life.' We had gone too far to go back, for what was ahead could be no worse than what was behind. So we pushed on, riding by night to avoid Indians and the intolerable heat, and concealing ourselves by day as best we could, sometimes having exhausted our supply of wild meat and emptied our casks, we were days without food and drink. Then a water hole or a shallow pool in the bottom of an arroyo so restored our strength and sanity that we were able to shoot some of the wild animals that sought it also. Sometimes it was a bear, sometimes an antelope, a coyote, a cougar. That was as God pleased. All were food. One morning as we skirted a mountain range seeking a practicable pass, we were attacked by a band of Apaches who had followed our trail up a gulch. It's not far from here. Knowing that they outnumbered us ten to one, they took none of their usual cowardly precautions, but dashed upon us at a gallop, firing and yelling. Fighting was out of the question. We urged our feeble animals up the gulch as far as there was footing for a hoof, then threw ourselves out of our saddles and took to the chaparral on one of the slopes, abandoning our entire outfit to the enemy. But we retained our rifles, every man, Ramon Gallegos, William Shaw, George W. Kent, and Barry Davis. Same old crowd, said the humorist of our party. He was an Eastern man, unfamiliar with the decent observances of social intercourse. A gesture of disapproval from our leader silenced him, and the stranger proceeded with his tale. The savages dismounted also and some of them ran up the gulch beyond the point at which we had left it, cutting off further retreat in that direction and forcing us up the side. 
Unfortunately, the chaparral extended only a short distance up the slope, and as we came into the open ground above, we took the fire of a dozen rifles. But Apaches shoot badly when they're in a hurry, and God so willed it that none of us fell. Twenty yards up the slope, beyond the edge of the brush, were vertical cliffs in which, directly in front of us, was a narrow opening. Into that we ran, finding ourselves in a cavern about as large as an ordinary room in a house. Here, for a time, we were safe. A single man with a repeating rifle could defend the entrance against all the Apaches in the land. But against hunger and thirst, we had no defense. Courage we had, but hope was a memory. Not one of those Indians did we afterwards see, but by the smoke and glare of their fires in the gulch, we knew that by day and by night they watched with ready rifles in the edge of the bush, knew that if we made a sortie, not a man of us would live to take three steps out into the open. For three days, watching in turn, we held out before our suffering became insupportable. Then, it was the morning of the fourth day, and Ramon Gallegos said, Senores, I know not well of the good God and what please him. I have lived without religion, and I am not acquaint with that of you. Pardon, senores, if I shock you, but for me the time has come to beat the game of the Apache. And after saying that he knelt upon the rock floor of the cave and pressed his pistol against his temple. Madre de Dios, he said, comes now the soul of Ramon Gallegos. And so he left us, William Shaw, George W. Kent, and Barry Davis. Well, I was the leader, and it was for me to speak. He was a brave man, I said. He knew when to die and how. It's foolish to go mad from thirst and fall by Apache bullets or be skinned alive. It's in bad taste. Let us join Ramon Gallegos. That is right, said William Shaw. That is right said George W. Kent. I straightened the limbs of Ramon Gallegos and put a handkerchief over his face. Then William Shaw said, I should like to look like that a little while. And George W. Kent said he felt that way too. It shall be so, I said. The Red Devils will wait a week. William Shaw and George W. Kent draw and kneel. They did so, and I stood before them. Almighty God, our Father, said I. Almighty God, our Father, said William Shaw. Almighty God, our Father, said George W. Kent. Forgive us our sins, said I. Forgive us our sins, said they, and receive our souls, and receive our souls. Amen. Amen. I laid them beside Ramon Gallegos and covered their faces. There was a quick commotion on the opposite side of the campfire. One of our party had sprung to his feet, pistol in hand. And you? he shouted. You dare to escape? You dare to be alive? You cowardly hound! I'll send you to join them and I'll hang for it. But with the leap of a panther, the captain was upon him, grasping his wrist. 
Hold it in, Sam Yancey, hold it in. We were now all upon our feet, except the stranger who sat motionless and apparently inattentive. Someone seized Yancey's other arm. Captain, I said, there's something wrong here. This fellow's either a lunatic or merely a liar, just a plain, everyday liar whom Yancey has no call to kill. If this man was of that party, it had five members, one of whom, probably himself, he hasn't named. Yes, yes, said the captain, releasing the insurgent who sat down. There is something unusual. Years ago, four dead bodies of white men, scalped and shamefully mutilated, were found about the mouth of that cave. They're buried there. I've seen the graves. We shall all see them tomorrow. The stranger rose, standing tall in the light of the expiring fire, which in our breathless attention to his story we had neglected to keep going. There were four, he said, Ramon Gallegos, William Shaw, George W. Kent, and Barry Davis. With this reiterated roll call of the dead, he walked into the darkness, and we saw him no more. At that moment, one of our party, who had been on guard, strode in among us, rifle in hand, and somewhat excited. Captain, he said, for the last half hour, three men have been standing out there on the mesa. He pointed in the direction taken by the stranger. I could see them distinctly, for the moon is up, but as they had no guns, and I had them covered with mine, I thought it was their move. They've made none, but damn it, they've got on my nerves. Go back to your post and stay till you see them again, said the captain. The rest of you, lie down again, or I'll kick you all into the fire. The sentinel obediently withdrew, swearing, and didn't return. As we were arranging our blankets, the fiery Yancey said, I beg your pardon, Captain, but who the devil do you take them to be? Ramon Gallegos, William Shaw, and George W. Kent. How about Barry Davis? I ought to have shot him. Quite needless, said the captain. You couldn't have made him any deader. Go to sleep. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. You can catch all our episodes at www.1001storiespodcast.com or wherever podcasts are found, especially at podbay.fm, stitcher.com, and iTunes Podcast. These are all free apps that you download to your iPhone, iPad, laptop, Windows, car touchscreen, whatever. And when you select our 1001 shows, they become favorites, and you'll be reminded every time we launch a new episode. I like listening to podcasts while I'm driving, and I use earpods attached to my cell phone, since I don't have touchscreen internet in my car. I also listen while I'm working on the yard or in the garage. I like podcasts more than TV because they allow me to use my brain, where much of TV is often just a mindless sensory experience that kind of robs you of intellectual thought and time. Until next time, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.